Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And my name's Mike. Hi, Mike. Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year to you and yours as well. It's the first episode of the new year. We should kiss. Should we do it on the podcast? Um, uh, that, that wasn't real, folks. She's no, full of beans. It, just it so wasn't. You know. I'm it like wasn't. three feet away from her. It's impossible <laughs> for that to have happened. And but there's a candle between us. I guess we'll make this radio magic. Mwah. <laughs> Yeah, so... Yeah, well, know. that had a lot of passion behind it. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of passion. Oh, yeah. 2024 is what we've got, right? <laughs> I'm moving into the new year as a passionate new me. That's right, that's right. A that's, lot of zest in this body. Then when they think zest, you look up zest, there's <laughs> Allison sitting there, smiling, big smile. In my sourpuss. Yeah, just... Uh, wah, wah. I am trying to turn over a new leaf in the new year. Yeah, and we've talked about it before, where it's like, it's not necessarily resolutions, but it's a good idea to kind of just look at yourself and be like, do I like where I'm going? Do I like what I'm, you know, the path I'm taking? If not, change it. Exactly. Just little changes can really add up. And mine is to be a little less like a crazy person because I'm always just spiraling around. I'm pretty, yeah, I give you kind of a look. I think that's in your DNA. So I don't know if you're going to be less of a crazy person ever, but I think, you know, just kind of coming to terms with the amount of craziness. Maybe at least have a better, like, focus on things rather than just spiraling around from one thing to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. More perspective, mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I love you for who you are. Well, I, you know, that's, that's kind of who I married. I knew exactly. what I was getting into here. It wasn't a surprise. When you give me a look, I'm like, well, you know who you married. <laughs> and uh, as long as it doesn't get too crazy, everything's all right. I'm yeah. reading a Brene Brown book, a Gabby Bernstein book. I'm starting this like six week challenge thing she does for mindfulness starting today. So we'll see. Who knows? Maybe in six weeks, I'm going to be like a friggin' Zen master. You know, I was thinking there's like so much opportunity to make money in the new year because there's so many people that are just like, yeah, I'm going to do things differently. Obviously, you know about like gyms, how they're packed with, you know, the new people that are trying to get a new perspective on their health and everything. But I think me and our, our son looked it up and um, I think only like... Th- three percent or five percent of people actually stick with the gym and it doesn't mean don't start because you know you know you might stick with it well the whole point is the decision lies with you yeah nobody's gonna make you or break you you have the power to change you and they say like don't don't think okay i gotta go there for a half hour every day or an hour every day Mm -hmm. just get there just walk through the doors you just saying you know what just me stepping foot is enough for me and then you know by the time you're there you're gonna probably want to stay and maybe get on the treadmill or whatever for five minutes and then it's like you know just make Give yourself step into the doors. Well, you know what else I like? If you're planning on doing cardio, um, pick a good show that you like and get some headphones. And like I just watched Shrinking on Apple Pod or Apple TV, and it really helps me get through my cardio. I cannot humanly do cardio on a machine like a hamster unless I have something to take my mind mm-hmm. off things. Oh my gosh, I could never. I just think, oh my God, I'm a rat. Like I'm just, I'm no better than a hamster or a rat running around in a wheel right now. Mm-hmm. What am I doing with my life? I'm like, this is what we've come to as human beings in 2024 is we're just running on this thing that keeps on going and we're not going anywhere. Like, right. I, I, I can't understand it. I, I don't know. But watching something good really makes the time fly by. Yeah, and it's good for your heart muscle, which is just like any other muscle. But really what we're hoping is that, you know, the new year brings you guys some health and happiness and thank you for being here with us yeah absolutely uh, it's very very much appreciated uh we were able to get away for a few days to uh, a hotel with the kiddos that was kind of fun yeah we went for two nights which was so nice the kids love it when we're away from home or especially our daughter because we're fully present with her there's nothing for us especially me because i'm always like jumping up oh i gotta scoop the cat litter oh gotta get the laundry something you're so, the big thing is cleaning for sure always so if we're in a hotel room it's like you 
you've you know you've got people to do this and we're paying good money for it so and um we looked up the because we were in orlando so we looked up disney wait times just to see like oh maybe we can go to disney it's so expensive though and we look at the wait times they're like three hours anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours i'm like okay so you know in a matter of like six hours we can get on maybe three Rides. Yeah, not even close to worth the mo- worth the money. And they came out with this new ride, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. What five years ago now? And we live an hour and a half away from Orlando, and we have never been on this ride. And we've been into the park maybe twice, you know, in the past five years, maybe two, three times, maybe. Yeah, and it's just like no, we still haven't gone on this ride because it's, it's always three hours. Yeah, it's like man alive, like that Disney sucks, man. I I love it for the magic and, and stuff, but it's it is terrible. Well, the last time we went to the Magic Kingdom was 2019 right before covid and we were sitting at like a lunch place looking at the app and we're like oh my gosh we can't get on anything if you're familiar with small world it's like you know a children's ride it's a throwback for nostalgia kind of sucks i've been on it since i was a, a baby um that was an hour and a half i'm like oh my gosh small world is an hour and a half yeah so we got away and usually what we try to do is get like a cheap hotel so i'm cheap as everybody knows oh boy is he ever yeah and so we try to get those timeshare things where you got to sit through the 90 minute thing and then you get like four nights usually for like 150 bucks at like a good hotel like really nice like a like a you know one of those vacation clubs or something from like marriott or hilton or whatever it is so it's like you know this time we didn't do it and it hurt me so bad because like they even offer it and you see my eyes light up they're like oh i saw they're like sir we'll give you um two hundred dollars of a credit if you sit through the thing i'm like oh honey what do you think and you're like no I'm well like, we were right. there for two nights i'm not spending half my day sitting and listening to some bull crap sales pitch yeah yeah that i, I know we're not going to invest in right yeah so yeah it's not for but us but it was nice to get away it and was. we appreciate you guys being here with us and i think on that note we're ready to get going let's do this so this is the murder of molly bish So Molly Bish was born on August 2nd, 1983 in Detroit, Michigan to parents John and Maggie Bish. She was the youngest of three children. Molly was a talented athlete, an honor student. She was just extremely outgoing, funny, very well-liked girl, somebody you wanted to spend time with. She was a good Bish. Mm -hmm. Molly's family decided to relocate when she was just a year old, so they went from living in Detroit, Michigan Um, to Massachusetts. And the reason why they did this was an 18-year-old girl who lived in their neighborhood ended up being abducted, raped, and murdered. So this is what tipped them over to say, you know what, let's get out of this area and find somewhere else to go. And obviously it didn't really work out as planned. No, it didn't. That's crazy. Wow. So (laughs) they move away for safety. And we're talking about this case. So we know that something horrific happens in this family, which is just so ironic and tragic. So the Bish family chose to go back to John's hometown of Warren, Massachusetts. This is a small town. As of 2020, the population was 5,000. Their goal of moving their family of five was to raise their children in a safe area where they could find their peace. And really, what more do you want is to be safe as a family and be peaceful. That's all we're trying to do for all of our kids is give them safety. Exactly. So 15 years after the move, it was the year 2000, and both Heather and John Jr., the two oldest of the Bish children, they left the home to go to college. So now it's just Molly at home. Meanwhile, Molly was 16 years old. She had just finished her junior year of high school. She had dreams of becoming a teacher so that she could work with children. At the time, she was looking forward to starting her first job as a lifeguard at Coleman's Pond in Warren, where she planned to earn extra spending money over the summer. 
Molly's brother John had gotten his lifeguard certification years before, and she wanted to be like her big brother and follow in his footsteps. John actually worked at Coleman's Pond as a lifeguard for three years, and he was the one that trained Molly at this position. So Coleman's Pond is centrally located in Warren. It's a popular spot for residents to cool off and relax. They also, a lot of people come to enroll their children in swimming lessons there. Molly felt accomplished after obtaining her certification to become a lifeguard. Her parents, on the other hand, were concerned because she would be working in an isolated area that was surrounded by woods and she would be doing it by herself. Oh, that's not good. I'm sure now there's probably no more by yourself, but Mm -hmm. because of something that's going to happen. Because of something that happened, things ultimately will change. So Molly officially started her job on June 19th, 2000. She began her shift at 10 a.m. During the first 20 or so minutes of the shift, Molly would set up for the day. During this time, she would be all alone as she prepared for swimmers to arrive. So on the morning of now Tuesday, June 27th, 2000, it was the first day of swimming lessons, and Maggie and Molly headed out and first stopped at a convenience store. They arrived at 9.50 a.m. They could be seen making their purchases. I think Molly got a bottle of water. Six minutes later, Molly checked in at the Warren Police Department in order to pick up her radio. Maggie dropped Molly off at Coleman's Pond at 9.58 a.m. to start her eighth shift as a lifeguard. Maggie said goodbye as Molly made her way out to a nearby shed in order to gather her supplies that she needed to set up for the day. The first visitors arrived at about 10.20 a.m., which was approximately 20 minutes after she was dropped off. And a woman and her two children noticed that Molly's chair was open, there was a towel draped over the back, and her sandals sat neatly in front. There was a first aid case that was open, her backpack sat on a nearby bench. Next to her chair was a two-way radio, a water bottle, a whistle, and Molly's lunch. But Molly was nowhere to be seen. So about an <clears throat> excuse me, about an hour later, Molly's boss arrived and learned that his employee wasn't there. But knowing that she was a very responsible person, he highly doubted that she would have just voluntarily abandoned her post. So at 11.44 a.m., he contacted police. When the police responded, it was discovered that Molly had never checked in with officers using her radio, which she was instructed to do at the start of her shift, which tells me something happened very close to when she first got there. So at 1 p.m., police finally contacted Maggie and explained the situation. Of course, she rushed to the area with, you know, great concern because she knows her daughter. Her daughter wouldn't just up and leave her post. Police did not initially secure the scene after just assuming that Molly simply left to hang out with her friends or her boyfriend. Those that knew Molly were adamant that she would never have done this. She was following in her big brother's footsteps. She took this job seriously. As a lifeguard, knowing swimming lessons are starting that day and children are going to be there, she would never abandon her post and put children's lives at risk. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you're the only lifeguard there, too. So I, mm-hmm. maybe they had other occurrences where other lifeguards would just leave, you know, but that's that seems sketchy. 
So they reinforced the fact that, you know, she wouldn't have done this based on her personality, but also the fact that her sandals were sitting there. And the area around there is very highly wooded. She wouldn't walk down those paths barefoot. Yeah, just got to like go get picked up and then go have fun. It's like just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So after police contacted Molly's friends and boyfriends, boyfriend, excuse me, it was confirmed that she wasn't with them. So police speculated that Molly may have drowned, but her loved ones felt that this was very doubtful. She was a strong swimmer. Obviously, <laughs> she, she's a lifeguard. She is a lifeguard. Now, not to say that it's impossible. Of course. People can drown. Maybe even she if dove in and hit her head or something. You know, you never know. So by late afternoon, the Massachusetts police took over the investigation and launched a search of the pond and surrounding area. Divers searched the pond for Molly's body while search dogs combed the surrounding woods. Oh, that escalated quickly. Very quickly. The divers found no sign of Molly and residents in their surrounding area were interviewed by police. And I remember reading that, you know, Molly's mom was standing by as divers are going in and just saying how surreal it is that they're in that water actively searching for her daughter's body and you're like hoping they don't find it because that means she's gone Mm -hmm. molly's belongings had been found in an orderly fashion and there was no signs of a struggle they said that that was the most alarming part of the scene was that everything was so neat that it looked like she would have just simply calmly walked off. Yeah, they're not crazy for thinking that. It's just like, okay, and just walked off, gone. Nothing, nothing, no struggle. Yeah, absolutely no signs of a struggle. So again, police started to go back to the idea that Molly had run away. Not only had she never done anything like this in the past, but again, all of her items, including her purse, her license, uncashed checks they were all left behind any idea if she was like a good student <laughs> yeah she was an honor student okay so like you know you, I, you can get it if it's somebody who misses school a lot and you know does that kind of stuff doesn't take you know those kind of things as importance but obviously she's somebody that you know does does pretty well for herself she's got a great group of friends she's an honor student she's athletic she's extremely close with her family i read that her sister was just so thankful that she got to hug her sister and tell her she loved her before she left so again she's very close with her family the odds of her ever just disappearing are not good you know voluntarily i should say so the search for molly became the largest search in massachusetts history to date and involved more than 200 officers cadets and trained civilian searchers that covered seven square miles of forest fields swamps and small mountains so this isn't exactly an easy terrain to look through there's a lot of trees and forest areas that are hard to navigate through so um, this is all surrounding the pond Helicopters, dogs, sonar equipment, and horses were brought in to assist with the search. Maggie later described the feeling of not knowing where her daughter was was like being part of a bad movie. John felt from the start that something terrible had to have happened to their daughter because, again, she wouldn't have just walked away on her own. He knew somebody must have taken her. Around this time, he thought a thought dawned on Maggie because, of course, she's just racked with grief and trying to think what could have possibly happened to my daughter. And it dawned on her that something strange had happened just the day before Molly disappeared. So on the previous morning, which was June 26, 2000, Maggie came to the pond with Molly for what was her seventh day of work. When they pulled into the parking lot, they noticed that there was a white car parked next to them, and a man was sitting inside. He was alone, and he was smoking a cigarette. 
Typically, when Molly arrived, it's, you know, an isolated area. There's normally not any people or cars at this point in time in the day. So it was very odd to see this person kind of like appearing to be lurking around. Like, why are you in this parking lot? What are you doing? Yeah, you're waiting to see if there's other people that he's yeah, maybe dropping off his kids or something. It's like, no, sir, can we help you? Like, you almost want to do that. Like, you're lost or something. Right. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, there was no reason for him to be in that parking lot smoking a cigarette just sitting there. So this, you know, seeing this middle-aged man lurking around made Maggie, rightfully so, very uncomfortable, knowing that her daughter would be working by herself until swimmers started to arrive. So Maggie did not feel comfortable leaving her daughter alone, and I would be the exact same way, hell to the no. So, you know, knowing the strange man is sitting there, not knowing what his intentions are, she walked Molly down to her post And then when she walked back to her car, the man was still there. Obviously, at this point, Maggie's probably trying to grapple in her head, like, what should I do? Because normally she would just drop her daughter off. Yeah, stay there. So Maggie made a point of staring at the man so that he would be sure to know that she had seen him. Like, hey, guy, I I see you. I know you're here. So and, you know, the fact making him aware that, you know, she's aware of his presence. The two locked eyes as he continued to smoke his cigarettes. Maggie said he gave her a bold look, a cocky look, and she stayed there and waited about 20 minutes for the man to leave. So he was there for quite a while. And that's usually when first swimmers start showing up about 20 minutes later. Right. And, you know, so she waited until he left because she was absolutely unwilling to leave her daughter alone while he was there. And I would have done the exact same thing. So when they arrived the next day, now it's again June 27th, um, this is the day that Molly disappeared. The man was not there when Maggie dropped her daughter off. Maggie did see a truck from a local company that was unloading sand for the beach. And this made her feel better knowing that other people were there doing some work and that Molly would not be alone at that point. Because police had no other suspects or leads, they turned their attention to this man that Maggie described and a a composite sketch was created, as well as a description of his car, and both were released to the public. A witness soon came forward and told police that they had seen the car on the morning of Molly's disappearance near a car wash at the base of Coleman's Pond Road, so very nearby. The driver of the sand truck said that they had also seen the car only moments before Maggie and Molly arrived. An employee from a cemetery just across the pond saw the car later in the morning, and there was a path that led from the cemetery straight to the pond. Or I'm sorry, yeah, like to the beach area where Molly would be. So it was John's theory that the man had likely parked at the cemetery and walked the path to the beach where Molly was setting up for the day. He likely took control of her and forced her to walk the path back to the cemetery where his car was parked, taking Molly from the area down nearby Route 19. Police also learned that a person who lived near the pond heard a scream right around the time that Molly would have disappeared. Mm. So we know something happened. So Molly's parents created an email chain with Molly's picture, which was sent to more than 35,000 people and created a website devoted to finding uh, their daughter that received thousands of hits, hoping to generate any information that could lead to finding their daughter. And obviously, they're praying that she could be found alive. Because Molly had been at the remote area of the pond alone, residents began discussing the safety at the pond, obviously, 
And this is something that her parents were immediately concerned about, knowing their daughter would be setting up for the day by herself. It's like, oh, great. Yeah, now let's start talking about safety. And then my daughter's gone. Thanks right. a lot. Now we're addressing it. The commissioner said that Coleman's Pond would not be reopened to the public unless two lifeguards were on duty together. But this wasn't going to be an easy thing because they struggled to find lifeguards at all, let alone two. Yeah. So Molly's case sadly grew cold for over a year, but her family refused to give up. Maggie tracked down a famed sketch artist named Jean Boylan, who worked on other high-profile cases, such as the Unabomber and Polly Class. This is a young girl who was kidnapped at age 12 from a slumber party at her own home in 1993. Jean agreed to meet with Maggie at a local bed and breakfast in hopes of creating a more accurate picture of Molly's suspected abductor. The two worked together for nine hours until the drawing was complete. Wow. Maggie was floored by the accuracy of the drawing, but felt that something was missing, one detail, and asked if Jean would create a second sketch, this time with the man holding a cigarette, because that's how she pictured him. Yeah, and obviously, you know, he's going to be smoking Mm because he's probably addicted. Right, and, you know, people who are big smokers they can sometimes go from one to the other so that's how you would see them is Mm -hmm. holding the cigarettes so they did this updated sketch and when gene showed it to maggie she felt instant fear because of how much it looked just like the man she had seen the day before her daughter went missing she felt renewed hope that this picture would help bring her daughter's abductor to justice. That's amazing that even a year later, she was still able to describe him so well that this is him. Like right. I, I couldn't tell you somebody from like yesterday. She was very uncomfortable with his presence. Yeah. Well, I'm just giving her credit. Like, that's amazing. So it seemed like she locked in the image of this person. So more now that more than two years after Molly disappeared, a break in the case came when a hunter noticed a blue bathing suit in the woods on Whiskey Hill, about five miles from Coleman's Pond in November of 20, or I'm sorry, 2002. The bathing suit matched the one that Molly was wearing. However, because the hunter believed that Molly had been wearing an orange bathing suit, he left it there and made no report of his findings. He just assumed somebody dropped their bathing suits. Sure. So now we're moving on to mid-May of 2003, and the hunter is having a conversation with another man. He mentioned finding the bathing suit. The man realized that this could belong to this could have belonged to Molly. It's like, why didn't she report it, dumbass? He's like, oh, she wore an orange one. No, it was blue. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, we should tell somebody. So they did. They contacted police, and the hunter led them to the area where the bathing suit was. So they used this point as a massive search in the area began now on June 3rd, 2003. And sadly, searchers soon found more than 20 human bones on a remote wooded hillside about 500 feet from where the bathing suit had been found. Uh. Sadly, six days later, it was June 9th, 2003, a little more than three years after Molly had gone missing, and DNA analysis as well as dental records determined that these were the remains of Molly. Sad. So, so sad. So Molly was finally laid to rest on August 2nd, 2003, which would have been her 20th birthday. Because of the time that had passed, Molly's cause of death could not be determined. But investigators obviously ruled her death a homicide. It's believed that Molly was buried in a shallow grave after she was murdered and animals later scattered her remains. There were signs that animals had, you know, bitten the bones. 
So over the years, several persons of interest have been identified in this case. In 2009, a Florida resident named Rodney Stanger, who was convicted of murdering his girlfriend, was investigated. At the time of Molly's murder, he lived in Southbridge, Massachusetts, which is only a few minutes from the town of Warren, which which is where he had lived for more than 20 years. His home was only three-tenths of a mile on the same street as the YMCA where Molly had gotten her lifeguard certification, and he often hunted and fished not far from the area where Molly's remains were found. Seems like a good lead. So he was aware of the area very well, and he could have seen Molly when she was at the YMCA. So on Saturdays in early 2000, John would drop Molly off at the Y, and then he would head to work about a mile away, and if she finished early, Molly would walk from the Y to meet her father, so it's possible that this was when Stanger first noticed Molly. Molly was very outgoing. She was very talkative. It's possible that she may have encountered him and began chatting. That's just the type of person she was. Sure. Hey, how are you? Yeah, and then that's really actually kind of a good rule of thumb if you notice somebody to talk to them so that they know that, you know, at least like say something. Right, so that like they know I you see, see them. you. Right. So the thing is, is that they thought it was possible that as she was chatting with him, she may have mentioned, oh, yeah, I'm at the YMCA doing my lifeguard certification because I'm going to get a job at Coleman's Pond. Mm -hmm. So then that would have made him know where she was that summer. And of course, he would know that this is an isolated area. That's possible. We don't know this for sure. Did he look like the sketch at all? So he, uh, yeah, I'll go there. So he also had access to a white car that was similar to the one that Maggie had seen. And he looks exceptionally similar to the composite sketch of the suspected murderer. And is he a smoker? Uh, Yes. Um, So after Molly's death, he relocated to Florida in 2003. So Stanger was arrested on suspicion of the murder of his girlfriend of more than 20 years. This is 50-year-old Crystal Morrison, who was found stabbed to death in her home in February of 2008 near Ocala, Florida. After her murder, Stanger broke into a neighbor's house and attempted to strangle the woman. He had also been questioned for the August 1993 murder of 10-year-old Holly Perenin, who went missing in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, which was 10 miles away from Warren while she was visiting her grandparents. Her remains were found two months later. Her murderer has never been found. So he was considered, he was talked to, but they didn't have any you know, evidence to say that it was for sure. So after Stanger's girlfriend, Crystal, was murdered, her sister went through the trailer that she and Stanger shared. She came across items that her sister would not have had and like owned. What? So there was like scrunchies and very childlike barrettes. Oh. So. Like those like fluorescent ones with like yeah, butterflies and stuff. That a 50 year old woman would not be wearing in her hair. And she knew her sister hadn't worn these items. Like this isn't her style. She's not a throwback type of chick. She's a 50 year old that wears 50 year old stuff. Right. So is it possible that he had involvement in some of these cases? Yes. Yeah. But he's never been convicted of any of this. So hard. Yeah. Yes. So Stanger has never been charged in Molly's nor Holly Perenin's case, but he was later convicted of Crystal Morrison's murder. Never charged in Molly's case? Never. So Molly's family hired a private investigator named Tom Shamsack, who visited Stanger in prison. So as they were sitting together, he showed him Molly's picture. Stanger refused to even look at it. He pushed it away. He refused to speak of any connection to Molly's murder. Molly's sister, Heather, has written him letters hoping that he will admit to his involvement, 
but each and every letter thus far has gone unanswered. Now, about Molly's mom, Maggie, right? Mm-hmm. That's her name. Did she have anything to say about this guy? Like, did she look at him and be like, that's the eyes of the killer of my daughter or anything like that? I didn't read in any of my research, and I've, you know, got a lot of references here. She never said, but there is absolutes, you know, that mention that he looks eerily similar to the drawing. Mm-hmm. So, in June of 2021, now a new suspect named Francis or Frank Sumner Sr. was identified. Over the years, police have received several tips about him, and on one particular occasion, an informant gave what they're calling clear, persuasive, incredible information that linked him to Molly's case. What this information is, we don't know. They didn't release that. Hmm. However, Sumner has died. He died in 2016 at age 71. He was a longtime resident of central Massachusetts. He owned and operated an area auto repair shop or shops, I should say. In 1982, he was convicted of aggravated rape and kidnapping after he locked a woman inside of of an apartment that he had hired her to clean. And he was trying to rent this apartment. So he's clearly not a good guy. He choked her, he threatened to kill her, and he raped her. This is a bad person. Yeah, those are the worst. And again, he was in the area where, you know, Molly was. He was released on parole in 1998, which would have been two years before Molly was murdered. So he was out and he was in the area. I mean, why don't we uh, label, I I don't know if we do or don't, but you know how like you can go to a database and search for like child predators and stuff? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't you label murders and stuff? Well, he was, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. You know, like somebody that, especially like a rapist murderer, like that's somebody who's dangerous to society. But wouldn't, he would be classified as a sex offender. He raped a woman. Okay, so. So I guess that's sex offender. He I didn't think murder it's... the woman. He he raped her. Oh, okay. And threatened to kill her. So that would be a sex offender. Yes. Okay. So he would have been. Okay. He should have been. So the shops he owned were in the area where Molly vanished. He resembled the composite sketch. He smoked with his left hand just as a suspect did. Ooh. So that's specific. Okay. He had access to a white car. Because, again, he has, has auto repair shops. He has access to any car. Yeah. So at the time of his death, he was facing several criminal charges. This included failing to register as a sex offender. Ah. So it's very possible that he may not have been on the list Mm -hmm. because he failed to register. He was also found making threats, disorderly conduct, and harassment. However, he had never been questioned in relation to Molly's murder before he passed away. So in July of 2022, DNA of Sumner's son was compared to DNA evidence from the case. According to Molly's sister, Heather, it wasn't a match. But despite this, he is still considered a suspect and more testing needs to be done in order to say that it's conclusive. As of just June of 2023, the additional testing was still being done. Police have indicated that there are still significant number of items of evidence that could be tested or retested due to the fact of scientific advancements, because this is back in 2000. And they have stacks and stacks and stacks of boxes of evidence from this case. So Molly's tip line remains opened. It's still described as being a very active case. Her killer has yet to be apprehended, and a $100,000 reward is being offered for information that could lead to an arrest. 
More than 20 years have passed since Molly's body was found, but police have indicated that they are still doing everything to solve Molly's case, and cases that are 40, 30, 20 years old are still actively being solved, again, because we have advances in testing of DNA. And even if this guy Sumner has died, I think it would be satisfactory, you know, give his give her family satisfaction to say this is the guy to know who did this to their daughter dead or alive, I'm sure would be some sort of closure for the family. So in hopes of generating something positive from this horrific ordeal, Maggie and John founded the Molly Bish Foundation to raise awareness of child safety and abductions. The foundation has assisted to have fingerprint and photo records of thousands of children to support families and address the issue of missing person response and training for law enforcement when somebody does go missing. You know, we think back to when Molly went missing, the case or the the location was not secured. Yeah, and it was close and nearby where they found her, right? Right. She was in the woods surrounding, you know, Coleman's Pond. It's possible she was still alive while they were thinking that, oh, she just went off with a friend. Right. So the point is, why not secure the scene as if something bad has happened? And you can continue to make whatever assumptions you have, but you secure the area so that people aren't trampling all all over it. Right. This was a little tricky because the swimmers arrived when Molly was missing. Yeah, it's a public lake. It's too. public. And yeah. these people don't yeah. know what's happening. This mom and her children. And I heard that the lesson started and somebody picked up Molly's whistle and was kind of like standing in as a lifeguard because nobody was there. So it's not necessarily, oh, it's the police's fault. The scene was open in the time before the police responded. Yeah, and there's a lot of people you'd have to tell to go home, and then all of a sudden pandemonium starts in the community. And But, I mean, it should have because there was a killer on the loose. So their goal is to, you know, have law enforcement better trained in how to respond to future cases like this. So in 2004, John and Maggie also co- uh, collaborated with Anna Maria College, to create the Molly Bish Center for the Protection of Children and Elderly with a mission to strengthen prevention and increase awareness and expand participation at all levels of the community to meet a broad range of needs for the most vulnerable population, which are the children and the elderly. They want to help prevent other children from becoming victims. And Maggie has said, you can lose your keys, you can lose your glasses, but how do you lose your children in America? Something is wrong, and it could happen here. And if it could happen here, it could happen anywhere. You know, she's dropping her daughter off for her eighth shift. Swimming lessons are starting that day. You know, you you think she's going to be safe. 20 minutes later, she's gone. Yeah, you're proud of your daughter for getting her certifications to be a lifeguard and helping other people in the community. And then she's gone. Yeah, it's just awful. So Molly's family realized that they can't change what happened to their daughter, but they can try to stop it from happening to someone else. So anyone with any information about Molly's case can call 508-453-7575. And that is where we stand, and that is the murder of Molly Bish. Wow, that sucks. Just a 16-year-old girl trying to earn some extra cash over the summer, following her brother's footsteps, be outside at a lake where people are having fun, 
and earn some extra cash while you're doing it. And she couldn't even be safe doing that. Yeah, a pond that was strangely surrounded by scumbags, like the guy from Florida and then the other guy that owned the auto places. Like two people that are... really bad guys. Yeah, really, really bad people. Mm -hmm. Horrible. And, you know, again, it was a very isolated area. And hopefully it's you know safer now where they're safety in numbers you're not leaving a lifeguard there alone and it sounds like molly tried to scream because somebody heard a somebody scream. absolutely heard a scream at the time that she would have gone missing and like we've said before you know if you're being taken away from your location that's not good so whatever you can do you know to scream if anybody's ever in the situation you know just be like molly try to scream as loud as you can because there's a good chance you're never coming back mm-hmm so, and uh, it's likely she was overpowered by whoever took her. She was, you know, 125 pounds. Yeah. You know, any of these guys probably could have easily grabbed her. Yeah. Yeah. So That's it's just sad. a horribly sad story. And my heart breaks for her family. Yeah. And then, you know, they they did the, the only thing they can do in their power. Like you can't change the past, but you can affect the future. Exactly. So again, if they can save one or two, and I'm sure they already have, you know, just by raising awareness and some somebody went off into some mom or dad's that was like okay this isn't a safe situation right oh they're doing good work in their daughter's name yes absolutely thank you for telling us about molly so thank you all for listening we appreciate each and every last one of you uh very very much so and uh you know we are uh, a mom and pop podcast i am uh pa and i am ma yeah and if you're one of those people that like purposely doesn't go to like chilies because they're everywhere or like applebee's and you like the to support the local businesses think of us as like your local you know podcast business now we are local because we're on the internet but we're not like those huge media companies conglomerates and stuff and you know every little bit helps that uh, anybody can help us out with so if you want to become a patreon then uh, you know that would be very much appreciated uh, throw us a couple bones you know whatever or don't you know a free way to help support us is just by subscribing to our podcast and telling your friends and neighbors and coworkers. so I understand you know times are tough for sure but if you got some extra scratch you know maybe throw it our way for a month or two who knows so we want to say welcome to the crime and coffee couple club to San, Tori, Amanda, Sam, Amber, Heather, Madison, Katie, Amy, and Ella what gorgeous, beautiful names and faces and like very creative and wonderful email addresses all of you have. I mean, you are just the best people as far as I can think. How the about? creme de la creme. Oh, the creme de la creme. That's <laughs> as they say. So thank you so much for believing in us and sharing some of your hard-earned money. And we really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, we never, ever take for granted. And like Mike says, we know that times are tough. People are... You know, battering down the hatches and all that. Got to pay off those. Battering uh, down the hatches. Yeah, yeah. Got to pay off those credit card debts from Christmas time. So yeah. that, that's tough. But. So we appreciate you guys so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Bye. bye.